Alright, dearly beloved, we are gathered here to, today to recognize the fact that John was busy elsewhere this morning, so you stuck with me. All joking aside though, we have a relatively heavy topic to discuss today. This morning, we heard Aaron read about the plague of locusts. Since we all read the weekly parasha, right? We all know that Parshat Bo contains the last three of the ten plagues, along with extensive instructions as to how Israel was to perform the Passover sacrifice and the Feast of Matzah. We have the last confrontation between Pharaoh and Moses, and the, ult- and the ultimate punishment of Adonai, demonstrating his unsurpassed power over the gods of Egypt. The angel of death killing all the firstborn in every house that doesn't follow his instructions. Now right in the middle of these events is a short little passage describing the ninth plague of Egypt. The plague of darkness. Being a short little passage, it's only eight verses long for the whole event. Only three verses for the plague itself. It usually gets only a short mention in the overall coverage of the plagues. And this week's parasha usually merits a sermon about the redemption of the Pesach. I thought we'd take some time to dive into this often overlooked plague and see some of the literal and symbolic meaning behind it. Because frankly, we've all heard Pesach sermons every year, right? Let's hear something a little different. Now before we begin, it's probably a good idea to define exactly what darkness is. The truth is, there's no such thing as darkness. That surprise anyone? No, no thing is darkness by itself, because darkness is merely the lack of light. It isn't a thing itself, it's just where light isn't. Now many of our ladies will be upset to find out that the same is true of cold. There's no such thing as cold, it's just less heat. That's not just, that's not just my opinion, that's science. Now as we get further into the passage though, it will soon become clear what Adonai sent upon Egypt was not the kind of darkness that we find in the natural world. It was a wholly supernatural and miraculous, a darkness that was able to exclude light, not just the absence of light. This is just my guess. I think it was the same darkness that covered the face of the deep in Genesis 1-2, before light was even created. Come to think of it, Adonai really could create cold, absent of relative heat. But fortunately, he never has. So when you think you're cold, you're just not as warm. Now, when you first read about the plague of darkness, it seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? You know, compared to the other plagues that afflicted Egypt, I mean, they still had drinking water. They weren't finding frogs in their britches and beds. A few days of darkness didn't hurt their crops, so they'd have that for food once it grew back. In the same vein, whatever cattle and livestock were left weren't being killed, so there was hope there. They weren't even being bludgeoned to death by huge flippin' hailstones whenever they went outside. It was just dark for three days. You've all been in the dark, right? Yeah, so have I. I dare say none of us has been seriously afraid of the dark since we were, what, three, four years old? Now, how many of you can get up in the middle of the night, go to the kitchen, get yourself a drink, without turning on a light? Yeah, it's no big deal. Even better, even better, at Sukkot Campout. I know, I called it a campout. How many of you are brave enough to walk back to your cabin, 
without a night blindness causing flashlight, despite the ever danger threat of squirrels. Yeah, you wander out in the dark, right? It's not that big a deal. You see, nighttime is really not a big deal, but nighttime is not what we're talking about here. Exodus 10.21 says that it was a darkness that could be felt. That first word, mashesh, doesn't just mean felt, like you can reach out, reach out in front of you and, and feel the seat cover. You can, you can feel whether it's rough or smooth, whether something's warm or cold, you can feel that. That's not the kind of felt that we're talking about. It's grasping and groping, like you're drowning in quicksand, trying desperately to find a hand to pull you out. But all you feel is the dense sand getting heavier and heavier, crushing your lungs as you sink into oblivion. Several commentaries state that the darkness was caused by the Khamsin, the wind of the desert. Now, once or twice a year, this wind blows across Egypt, carries sand from the Sahara, and blocks out all the sunlight for two or three days. Makes Egypt like a gloomy night, with air almost impossible to breathe. Anyone here ever been in a sandstorm? Yeah, if you haven't, it's almost impossible to describe. You, it's, it's hard to explain how hard it is to breathe because you're, you're, you're breathing in dirt when you're trying to breathe. Now, the experts who wrote these commentaries say the plague of darkness was the heaviest and densest Kamsin ever seen. In all honesty, though, I can't agree with them for one simple reason. They had houses. And they were used to the annual sandstorms. I can't imagine that all of Egypt was unable to close up their houses enough to keep the wind out. And once you block the wind, the sand settles. It's still all over everything, but it's not blowing around in the air anymore. Nothing stops you from lighting a lamp. This would have been standard operating procedure for Egypt twice a year. This darkness then was something new, something completely different. It's a pale shadow of the reality, but how many of you have been on a cave tour when they turn off the electric lights? Only a few, okay. Uh, growing up in the Midwest, we'd visit Merrimack or Mammoth Caves about once or twice a year. And uh, that darkness scare was always a highlight. I loved it when they did that. You see, what you think of darkness is almost, ne almost never totally dark. There's always a little bit of light, just not as much as you used to. Deep underground, though, there is no sun, no moon, no stars. When they turn off the electric lights, they tell you to cover up your wristwatch with your hand because the little radium on the, on the hands will be blindingly bright compared to that darkness. The LED face on Norm's watch, his little calculator watch, you've seen it with the 1980s LED light-up face? Yes. It would be easily enough light to safely walk around. And it's scary. I mean, down to your soul, scary. Not only can you not see your hand in front of your face, you soon lose all sense of relationship with the world around you. They usually don't leave the lights off for more than a minute because people start to panic. But by the end of that minute, in the silence and darkness, you can hear mice rustling in their nests in far-off chambers, and you'd swear you can feel the breath of the huge beast in your neck. If you're not used to it, you lose your sense of time. Drop a pebble, and it seems to take an eternity before it hits the floor. Surely there's a deep hole right in front of you, 
you don't dare move your feet. It doesn't matter the floor was solid just a few minutes ago. Things happen in the dark. And your imagine is unfettered by reality because it's completely cut off from it and you can't see it. When I was a kid, uh, a young teenager, there was a park in Indiana called Spring Mill. I doubt if anybody here has ever been there. They had a mill and a spring. That's why I got the name. Uh, they had a, little, a couple of little caves, and the longest one went for a few hundred yards and then came out on the other side of the hill. I decided one time to test my own resolve by getting to the middle of the cave, turning off my flashlight, and sitting quietly for half an hour. Pretty brave for a 13-year-old. After a little while, probably four or five minutes, I heard a little rustling sound that I couldn't immediately identify. It'd make noise for a few seconds, then it'd get quiet again for two or three minutes. It'd make noise a little bit closer, and be quiet again for two or three minutes. This happened over and over again for about, uh, it, it felt like it was pretty close to about half an hour. And every time it made the noise, it would seem a little bit closer. Finally, my time was up. Oh, I thought my time was pretty close to being up, and I kind of panicked and turned my light back on. Checked my watch, looked over, saw a little squirrel running away. Maybe it was a chipmunk, I don't know. It was, even with the flashlight, it was pretty dark in there. When I checked my watch, 87 seconds had passed. Yeah. Now imagine that going on for 72 hours. No knowledge that the darkness would end. I knew I could turn my flashlight on. The Egyptians didn't have that. For all they knew, this darkness was eternity. One could easily go mad. Jerry over here, the blind would suddenly be kings. Because they're used to navigating the darkness. They know how to go around the world without seeing it. The rest of us are completely lost. Now this example, this visceral fear that we all share, explains why darkness, besides being a literal thing, is symbolic of so much. There's a phrase in Exodus 10.23 that says, Neither rose any from his place. Literally, no one rose up from what surrounded him. Uh, this is a phrase that will seem intimately familiar to anyone who has dealt with depression. Mental darkness. You just don't get up from where you're sitting. I've experienced that before. I'm sure many of you, don't raise your hands, but I'm sure several of us here have. Now, like the plague, it can come on without warning, leaving you unable to do anything, and every attempt to light a lamp is met with failure. In the same way, illness can be described as a physical darkness. Scripture says the Israelites had light in their homes. And I can't help but imagine that all of Egypt could see this light, but they couldn't illuminate their own places with it. This goes contrary, by the way, to all the laws of physics. But we're talking about a miraculous event here, right? Illness runs along a similar path. One of the hardest things about being ill is seeing healthy people enjoying things that you remember taking for granted too. 
That physical darkness can easily lead to mental darkness. Well, that works out the imagery for mental and physical darkness. But what about spiritual darkness? Well, for that, let's go back to our definition of what darkness is. The absence of light. Darkness doesn't exist as a thing itself. It's just a way to describe light not being there. So in order to define spiritual darkness, we must first define spiritual light. Fortunately, scripture makes this really easy. First, let's go to an easy, obvious citation we'll all recognize. John 1, 1 through 4. I'm reading from the King James. Your version may be a little different. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This clearly states that light and life are the same thing, right? At least in a spiritual sense. I don't want to imply that a corpse produces fewer photons than a living person. But I do want to suggest that Scripture uses both light and life as metaphors for the same thing. And that thing is probably beyond our ability to fully define. We can understand this much, though. Light, the antithesis of darkness, and life, the antithesis of death, are intimately related. Different ways of describing the same thing. Our next two sources, by the way, are also from the Gospel of John. This shouldn't be too much of a surprise because the three synoptic Gospels, they're really more biographical. Uh, you all knew this already. John is more of a theological treatise that uses Yeshua's biography as a framework for it. Now at the height of his ministry, when Yeshua had just fed a crowd of 5,000 listeners, walked on the Sea of Galilee to meet his disciples, this huge crowd followed him to Capernaum. And they asked him to, to again provide bread. Apparently they had all left home without the means of carrying a lunch with them. And Yeshua said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now at the last Seder, when Yeshua had revealed to his disciples that he was to be killed, you know, Judas had just left to betray him. Peter had been told that he would deny his master. And Yeshua comforted the fears with this saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I almost wish that the misquoting of this was right because it would have made my sermon a lot easier. I could have just said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. It doesn't actually say that. Most people quote it that way. So when they quote it that way, you don't have to hit them over the head and tell them they're wrong. Just remind them that it's actually life. Now probably Yeshua's clearest statement on this subject was delivered quietly to a frightened woman caught in the act of adultery. Then spake Yeshua again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That's comforting, isn't it? Yeshua himself is the antithesis of darkness. And spiritual darkness is merely the lack of Yeshua, just as physical darkness is the lack of light. Now, fear and hopelessness, these are hallmarks of spiritual darkness. And how do you cure darkness? You simply add more light. Of course, that's not always as easy as flipping a switch or lighting a lamp. But I'll tell you a secret. If you put yourself in a place that's brightly lit, it takes a pretty solid wall to keep something dark. 
If you surround yourself with people who have that light, more importantly, if they let that light shine into you, it's difficult for darkness to survive. Now moving back to our Torah passage, we see in Exodus 10.23 that the people of Israel had light in their homes. Right in the same verse, this says the Egyptians couldn't rise up for three days. Now if the Egyptians went among the Jews, they could see the light, but none rose up for their places. Does that sound familiar? Do you know people who see the light of Yeshua in you, but refuse to get up and stay in the darkness instead? How many people in the world deliberately keep themselves away from Yeshua? Does that picture remind you of anything? Sitting, suffering in darkness, seemingly eternally separated from the light. Able to see the light, but unable to receive relief from it. Reminds me of the parable of Lazarus the beggar and the rich man who both died. In the words of Yeshua, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. The rich man could see succor, but he was unable to approach it. Just like the Egyptians could see that Israel had light, but they were unable to rise up from the places and go to it. Conclusion then, and this is just my interpretation, I think the plague of darkness was a metaphor for hell. Many commentaries make much of the fact that the plague of darkness was delivered, unlike all the other plagues, with no warning. Every other plague, God told Moses, go and tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let my people go, I'm going to do this. He did that with the plague of locusts just before that, and then suddenly brought on the plague of darkness without telling Pharaoh. It just happened. I would contend that the reason for this is that the plague itself is Adonai's penultimate warning to all those who aren't submitted to him. You have only two choices in your eternity, both here and in the afterlife. Live submitted to Hashem or die in tormented darkness separated from the light. Now after receiving this warning, suffering a taste of hell for three days, Pharaoh called Moses and offered half measures, just like John pointed out last week. Now you'll notice, of course, that Pharaoh only had the confidence to compromise with Adonai after the darkness had passed. Most of the world is the same way. All of the atheists raging that all mention of God should be removed from our society, they're still enjoying the divine gift of life, aren't they? The very spark of godlikeness that enables them to choose disobedience. Of course, from the point of view of Adonai's absolute righteousness, we don't do a lot better. 
we're always negotiating with God, even if we're not aware of doing so. We tell the Lord that we'll love Him. We'll serve Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, except for... and fill in your blank there. That except is different for all of us. Maybe I'll not serve Him by coveting what someone else has. Maybe I'll not serve him by rationalizing a reason why his commandment, whichever one, doesn't really apply to me here and now. Maybe I'll not serve him by hating someone who sins differently than I do. We've seen a lot of that this past year, haven't we? Every time we do that, we put up a block to Adonai's light. We create a little more shadow and a little less light in our own lives. If you've ever lived in the desert, you know the difference between being in the sun and being in the shade, right? Yeshua warned the church at Laodicea about that in St. John's Revelation. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I'm pretty confident that nobody here is completely cold. But all of us have some parts in our lives that are shadowed from Yeshua's light that isn't warmed by Him. By that absolute standard, we are all neither hot nor cold because we're not completely hot. Baruch Hashem that forgives and covers these shortcomings with His promised grace. We know that in the eternal judgment, these shortcomings will be forgotten. That we will not be treated like the lukewarm but how much better to avoid the problem altogether? There's a warning to us again there in Exodus 10.27. Adonai hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he continued in his sin, just when he may have been frightened enough to repent. We know that a few times Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but at some point Adonai confirmed that choice and kept Pharaoh from changing his mind. I don't know when that happens. Nobody does. I've never met anybody who could say, you can sin this many times, then after that, you can't change your mind anymore. How many chances has he granted you to repent from your pet sin? I'll leave you to think about that for a while while we move on to our last interaction between Moses and Pharaoh in this passage. In fact, it's the last time they'd ever see each other again. Pharaoh tells Moses, Get away from me. If you see my face, you'll die. Sounds a lot like, It is appointed unto the men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Pharaoh had it backwards, though. Judgment and death was coming soon, but not for Moses. Moses had another 40 years left to serve Adonai. Pharaoh would be dead within a week. Now at that moment, could Pharaoh kill Moses? Sure, not even really a big deal, barring divine intervention. Hey you, a hundred or so guards over there, uh, take this Moses guy over here and take him out and kill him. Oh, and on your way, bring me a cappuccino on your way back. You know, the cappuccino really would have been the difficult part. Well, that and the whole divine intervention bit. 
In the same way, can the world kill you? Sure. Disease, pollution, hurricanes, ISIS, carjackers, rioting snowflakes. The list of things that can kill you in the world is long. It's long and scary. The list of things that want to kill you isn't a lot shorter. In short, there's a lot of the world that is shadowed from light. Where darkness prevails. It can't stay dark when the light shines there. But until the light shines there, it's under the curse of darkness. That may well be worth being cautious about, but afraid? And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But you are made in the likeness of Adonai and need fear nothing on earth. For nothing can harm you eternally, apart from yourself and your own decisions. And the same grain of thought, can Adonai kill you? Of course he can. See, not even a good question. To paraphrase several comedians, he brought you into this world and he can take you out of it. With less than a thought, Adonai could not only kill you, but ensure that not only you, but all of your ancestors had never been born. That's kind of what omnipotent means. What's more, he can not only kill you here and now, but he has the authority to grant life or death eternally. He can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, he has the ability to kill you, but does Adonai have the right to kill you? Again, of course he does. He's creator of creation. And as such, all of creation, including you and me, is his to do with as he pleases. Hath not the power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared for glory. You see, John took from my passage into his uh, sermon last week, so I took from his Haftar reading into this week. Every time you commit the slightest sin, no matter how minor it is, Adonai has both the ability and the just and holy right to utterly destroy you where you are. But has Adonai killed you? Well, you're here, so obviously not. And why not? Grace. His grace is sufficient to thee. God is love, and God and love is many, many things. I'm not going to take the time right now, but read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 3 through 8, for a good definition on what love is. Uh, if you have King James Version, I know it says charity. That's a bad translation. It should say love. And be grateful that that is the standard to which Adonai holds himself. Not because he bound, not because he's bound to, not because he has to, but because he holds himself righteous. And then, after you've told Adonai how grateful you are for his grace, take that other verse from Matthew. 
and go out into the darkness of the world. What I tell you that in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Be the light that shines into the darkness. You, have the, you, have, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have Adonai within you. You have Yeshua within you. And Yeshua is light. And where light is, darkness cannot be. Carry that light. Go out, just do it. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon. We, we thank you for the fact that you fill us with your light. Lord, we ask you for the, that you would change each of us. Grab a hold of our hearts and our minds and take away anything that keeps us from embracing your light. Anything that keeps us from allowing your light to shine through us into the world. Lord, remove from me anything that hinders your work. Hashem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.